Welcome back to Environmental Laws with Thompson Hine. I'm happy to be back with you for another episode. My name is Joel Eagle, and I'm a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group in our Cleveland, Ohio office. As a reminder, LAWS, L-A-W-S, stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And in each episode, environmental attorneys at Thompson Hine will be talking about a timely and relevant environmental law topic. As a recap, in episode one, Devin Barry, a partner in our Cleveland office, talked to me about regulatory compliance changes and strategies during the COVID-19 pandemic. And in episode two, our environmental practice group leader, Andy Kolasar, spoke with Ray Blattner, environmental attorney and partner in charge of Thompson Hines Dayton office, about strategic considerations around the closing of former manufacturing plants. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Terry Fay, a partner in Thompson Hines environmental practice group in Columbus and Cleveland. Terry is a walking encyclopedia of environmental law and over four decades of experience in the public and private sector. Terry has been involved in many major civil and criminal environmental OSHA litigation matters. Terry, thanks for speaking with me today in the office, and I must say it's nice to really see a live face here. It is good to see a live human being. It's been months. Um, today, Terry and I are going to be talking about environmental crimes and specifically what to do if you or your client faces a surprise and obviously unwelcome visit from federal authorities with a criminal search warrant. Terry, let's get right to it. So why don't you set the stage for our listeners? What's a, a typical situation in which a facility or a company may be the subject of a criminal investigation pursuant to a search warrant? Not many people realize, but all of the major environmental statutes have criminal provisions. It's generally a violation, a criminal violation of law that people can be locked up for, for violating certain provisions, whether it's the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or RECRA or what have you. A number of years ago, I got a call, a frantic call from a plant manager whose plant was being searched basically by about 100 federal agents. They showed up at 6 a.m. in the morning with a search warrant and they fanned their, you know, they ran through the facility and they began questioning people and they began, there were about 200 employees present and they they interrogated the plant manager for hours and the, and the assistant plant manager for hours. They wouldn't let the poor guy call his corporate headquarters, which was several hundred miles away until around midday, which is when I got the call. And I was two hours away. There wasn't a lot I could do. These searches typically only last for about eight hours. So when I got the call midday, they'd been there since 6 a.m. I figured the search was nearing the end. Actually, they were there until almost midnight and a criminal prosecution followed. Not my first criminal case, but certainly one of the bigger ones. And, you know, I've seen a half a dozen to a dozen of these things over the last 40 years. They're not commonplace, but they do happen. Yeah, I, well, it sounds like a bad day for the office for anyone who's involved in that sort of thing. Um, so most of these cases are civil. I mean, I, I I'm, have been involved in a couple of criminal, but not that money and most of the investigations that I deal with are, are, are civil. So why would EPA start a civil, a criminal investigation? Well, you're right. Most of these things are civil. At the very beginning, most of these major federal environmental statutes date from the 70s with the implementing regulations coming out in the 70s and 80s. And at the beginning of the, of the regulatory programs, most, almost all of the enforcement was, was civil, but there were occasional criminal prosecutions and they've increased over time. Right now there's like a hundred or so a year or something like that. Uh, whereas there's maybe what 
Joel, you know the numbers, I think, like several thousand civil civil cases. So yeah, these things are not are not common, but they do happen as to why. Um somebody dies, uh, a cement kiln exploded in um, um Akron, maybe 10, 15 years ago. They criminally prosecuted under the Clean Air Act uh, the people involved. So a major environmental catastrophe uh may very well be civilly as well as criminally enforced uh somebody wiped out a 10 mile stretch of the ohio river one time he was criminally prosecuted so when something really bad happens uh the government may go criminal another thing that takes the government criminal is intentionally flouting the law if you thumb your nose at the feds and they tell you not to do something and they tell you not to do something and most people get more than one warning um and if you just thumb your nose at them and do it you don't have to kill somebody but they may very well decide to prosecute so those are kind of the two major drivers so was your the the example that you gave at the beginning was that a federal investigation or a state that one was a federal investigation uh uscpa coordinates to some extent, at least, it's it's criminal and civil enforcement with uh, the delegated states. So Ohio is in USEPA Region 5, and there's a joint enforcement task force between Ohio EPA and USEPA, and they talk about who's going to do what and whether they're going to go criminal or civil. Okay. So I took uh, evidence. I took uh, institutional law, criminal law in law school. Uh, I didn't do awful, but um, I at the risk of stirring up bad memories what are some of the constitutional and procedural issues that come about um, either before an investigation or during the investigation um, that you've seen are really important if the government decides to go criminally uh, they almost always secure a search warrant from a if it's in the federal system a judicial officer of the united states uh, but but it's important for everybody to understand that happens towards the end of the investigation. They can't get a search warrant without demonstrating to a judge or a magistrate probable cause that a crime has been violated and that evidence of the crime is located at a specific premises. To do those two things, to make those two showings, they have already conducted an extensive investigation. Um, the government is a firm believer in the Pearl Harbor School of, of, of criminal prosecution. They don't want the targets of their investigation to know they're being investigated criminally until the end of the process or towards the end of the process. So they're not going to let you know. By the time they get around to ser serving a search warrant, they're towards the end of the process. They've already decided you did it. And the search warrant is, is kind of like the, the, the last step in the process. Um, so uh, the entire they have to secure a warrant, but you don't get to participate. The target doesn't know it's going on. The, it's ex parte, as we lawyers like to say. The prosecutor approaches the judge, asks for the warrant, demonstrates cause to believe a crime has been committed and that evidence the crime is at the searched premises to be searched and then the judge signs the warrant. You don't know what's going on. The, uh, the target of the, of, of, the, of the investigation doesn't know it, it's going on until they show up at the warrant. 
let's dig in a little bit more to the to your hypothetical situation, which certainly never never actually occurred, right? Um, you mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier. I know you've you've kind of explained this story to me before because it is pretty fascinating. But the, the plant manager was um, set aside um, and and uh, interrogated for hours, and I think you'd said that he had asked to call corporate and was denied. Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, the first thing to understand is the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution requires the government secure a warrant, right? We all had that constitutional law proposition drummed into us in law school. Um, a search warrant does not grant the government the authority to interrogate witnesses, but they do that. It is U.S. DOJ standing policy to inter interrogate people during searches. And remember, they show up unannounced. It's a surprise. You don't know they're coming. So in my hypothetical, when they show up at the plant at 6 a.m. and under prevailing custom and law, search warrants are good from 6 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night unless the, unless the government strike that, unless the court decides otherwise for a good cause shown. Um, when they show up at 6 a.m., you don't know they're coming. And you're, you're afraid the plant people are afraid and they're going to answer questions because they're going to be afraid not to. And there's nothing that a defense lawyer likes. Uh, there's nothing that a defense lawyer hates more than having his client interrogated and, and, and disclose a bunch of damaging things because they didn't know to keep their mouth shut. Remember, when the government shows up at the warrant, they've already decided you did it. Mm hmm. So you weren't there. You you get called uh, by the time you got there. I think you'd said the uh, the search was essentially uh, the warrant execution was essentially complete. If you had gotten there earlier, um, is there anything that you could have done differently or would have tried to do differently? Well, the first th well, actually, what happened was I did not go because the search had already been going on for six hours and I was two hours away, and so. I figured by the time I got there, the search would be over. What I did do was to get on the phone to the assistant U.S. attorney, who I ha I've known for many years, he actually worked for me back in the day, um, and I told him I wanted the interrogations to stop. And it turned out they did, but by the time I had that conversation, they'd already worked their way pretty thoroughly through the plant. Um, did they stop the investigation, the interrogations, do you think, because you told them to stop or were they wrapping up anyway? I think that I think they had very few left to do and they stopped because the assistant U.S. attorney in, in the trade, we call them AUSAs. The AUSA asked them to as a, as a favor to me because we were old friends, but they'd already gotten what they were going to get. OK, so they didn't they did interviews. Uh, they grabbed. A lot of documents. They they uh, copied hard drives or took hard drives. Um, yeah, back in the day, they, they actually physically removed the hard drives. Now they have the technology. They call it mirroring. They can copy the the hard drive on site. So so now they copy the hard drives. But yes, the paper documents they haul off in boxes. And they, also, they in an environmental it? case, they'll take samples. Mm -hmm. What you and I do, you know is many times driven by the presence of chemicals. And so that, so depending on the, on the type of case, this was a, a water act case. They wanted to know what was in the waste waste of, uh, of the plant. So they took, they took samples.
right right at that time when yeah. potentially releases were still ongoing. Right. Um, so where does all that evidence go once the, the fiscal evidence that they've taken away? What, what happens to all that? Well, the first thing that happens is they, uh, the government has to leave what is called an inventory when, when they depart with, with, the, with, with what they've seized. They have to leave a copy of the inventory with the, uh, with, with the target, and they have to uh, submit what is called a return that has a copy of the, um, of the inventory to the court. Now, as far as the physical possession of the evidence, US EPA typically keeps it. Sometimes it's kept by the, by the, by the AUSA, who's in charge of the case. It just depends. Okay. <clears throat> well, we deal with civil investigations much more often than we deal with the criminal ones. And you know, I, I suspect that a lot of what happens in a criminal investigation, uh, although there are Obviously, more constitutional issues involved, but they're they're looking for similar things. They're they're they want to, they want to talk to people. They they either believe that there is an issue, and in this case, a criminal. They know that uh, they've done an investigation to some point that there is an issue. Um, what what is what are some of the main differences between a civil investigation on the ground and a criminal investigation? The most important distinction is the exclusionary rule. If the government screws up, makes a, a, a mistake that has constitutional dimensions, the evidence can be excluded. So the government has to be a lot more careful when it, when it uh, implements a search uh, pursuant to a warrant to, to gather evidence of the commission of a crime. Um, okay. which, which is why the, the interrogation process uh, is especially distressing to, to a defense lawyer because there isn't anything you can do to keep them from hauling off documents. Uh, they already have established probable cause before the court. You can move. You can move to squash squash the warrant and, and, and try to get the evidence back. That almost never is successful, but criminal lawyers do that all the time. But chances are the government is going to be able to keep the fruits of the search unless they do something outrageous. Um, but the interrogations, the interrogations shouldn't happen. The search warrant doesn't authorize them and the government will do them anyway. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that a defense lawyer worries about is what the government learned from, its, from the interrogations. We, defense lawyers also wanna know what the government got in the, in the way of paper. Mm -hmm. in, in your hypo, um, would the, um, investigators make copies and leave things behind? Did they shut down the plant? Did they leave enough behind if they didn't shut down the plant to keep uh, the facility operating? No, they waltzed out with the rec paper records that they wanted. It's up to the attorney for the plant to negotiate the return of the documents or to secure copies from, from the, the U.S. Attorney's Office or okay. U.S. EPA, typically the U.S. Attorney. So I suspect that in a in some circumstances, if the release is bad enough or some other um, situation warrants shutting down the facility, they can do that. No, actually, they can't. A warrant doesn't give them the authority to do anything except search and seize, and only seize the documents or categories of documents as specified in the warrant. They don't have the authority to shut down the facility. The plant may want to do that for reasons we can talk about, but 
no, the government doesn't have, have the authority to, to uh, in a search, uh, uh, to shut the premises down. So let's talk about some practical tips. What in, in this in a situation where um, the authorities have swarmed in, um, they've um, sequestered people in different rooms. Um, what what are some things that you'd recommend either the plant manager or or if they're able to get in touch with corporate? What are what are some steps that they should be taking right away? Well, my my uh, it would be great if counsel could be present. Uh, because the the searchers, the the, the U.S. Attorney Marshal and the and the chief EPA investigator, isn't going to pay much attention to what the what the plant manager asks or wants or or doesn't want. Uh, if counsel is present, it, it makes it a lot easier, or at least, at least it gives gives the plant some leverage to negotiate what's what's happening. So if you can have counsel present, have counsel present. Uh, the next practical uh, advice uh, I can give is, is, is to have a protocol uh, uh, in place for this, this kind of thing um, that tells the plant what to do, who's in charge, and, and what should happen. Um, because in my hypothetical, which is actually something that happened uh, or a version of it happened, the plant had no idea what to do, and the corporate headquarters wasn't informed until about the same time I was. So mm -hmm. it's important for everybody to know what, what's important to happen. The third thing I would do is, if I'm the plant manager, who's ever in charge of the plant, send the employees home. Uh, you can't tell your employees not to cooperate with the government. That may very well be obstruction of justice. Uh, include, and you can't tell them not to answer questions. But what you can do is place them out of the reach of the government, send them home. I wouldn't do that without telling who's ever in charge of the search, typically the, uh, a senior EPA investigator, that you are sending them home and, and keep a skeleton crew on hand. Uh, it may be obstruction. The government thinks it is. If if you don't have people around to open locked doors and things like that, and they'll break the doors down, so there's something to be said for having a skeleton crew still at the plant. But I would I would send the employees home. What about obstruction claims just by virtue of sending people home? Can't can't the DOJ or the prosecutors say, you know, you you've obstructed the investigation simply by eliminating our ability to talk to the people we wanted to talk to? They can and may. Uh, I'd be surprised if a judge would ever honor such a you know, would, would, would give any credence to such a claim. Uh, mm -hmm. The warrant doesn't grant the government the authority to do anything but search and seize, which means it doesn't give the government the authority to keep people on site. That could very well be uh, false arrest, false imprisonment. Uh, and, and at least create civil claims against the government employees that were involved. So now it, it's a lot easier for if counsel is present for counsel to make that point and be believed. It's much harder for the plant manager to make that case. And and I, said, I wouldn't send everybody home. I, I keep a skeleton crew on hand. Yeah, and as you said earlier, I, in, in this, these are so rare that a plant manager is probably not experienced this before. He doesn't know what's going on, and he does, certainly unless he's watched enough episodes of law and order uh, environmental unit, he, he doesn't really know what to do. Um, so he probably isn't thinking real clearly at that moment. You know, the first thing I need to do is X, Y, and Z. 
And that's why I recommend to my corporate clients, certainly that they have a protocol, you know, a, a white paper uh, with instructions to, to their plant managers as to what to do, mm-hmm. because you're right. These things happen so infrequently that they're not likely to know. Yeah. And I can't emphasize too many times when the government shows up with a warrant, they've decided you did it. Right. Um, so what, what other options does corporate headquarters have if they get a call from a plant manager uh, explaining that the, the feds have just or the, the uh, investigators have just arrived at their door and they're inside and they're swarming around? What, what else can HQ do? Besides calling somebody like me, uh, if, if the company is big enough to have a, a house counsel's office, house counsel ought to get involved and ought, ought, to, ought to get on the phone to the government and uh, tell the government and tell the plant manager that they're sending their employees home and keeping a skeleton crew handy so that if something comes up that the searchers need assistance with, somebody will be present. Um, that's one thing. Well, one thing that troubles me that you said a little while ago, Terry, is seizure of documents without your ability uh, to to make claims for things like privilege. And once, you know, I, I've heard you say many times, and it's it's a common phrase in uh, the world. You know, once the cat's out of the bag, you can't put it back in. And uh, if if they've taken privileged documents, uh, they may have to return them and not use them later. But is there anything that you can do on the front end to, to help prevent that from happening? Well, when it comes to the the fruits of the search, what they actually took with them when they left, um, there's really maybe four things to worry about. One is privileged documents, absolutely. Uh, DOJ has a policy of cooperating with people who claim that you've taken privileged documents. And if you get to the AUSA quickly, uh, and tell them where the privileged documents are to be found, the USDOJ will segregate those documents and create a separate panel not involved in the search of attorneys who will review the privilege claim and give, give the documents back to you. But you got to get to them. you got to tell them this has happened. Otherwise, the people who conducted the search will read those documents. Uh, and then, yes, uh, you can't unring the bell. Uh, so that's one one category of problems. Another category of problems is in our world, the environmental world, uh, environmental law and regulation many times requires certain documents to be present on site. Uh, certain permit requirement permits require the copy of the permit be present, and there are others. And if those things get taken by the government in an environmental search, they may very well. Um, arguably the plant has to close the next day. You can't go back into production. A third category of document in our world, the health effects of exposures, especially in OSHA cases, but many times environmental cases as well. Um, the exposure information is important to the government and they'll take medical records, which HIPAA it, it protects from disclosure to anybody and paces the mandatory obligation. I'm not a healthcare lawyer, but this is my understanding. Uh, HIPAA places a mandatory obligation on the employer to preserve the confidentiality of those documents. And most plants have in HR, they many times have a nurse and they'll have medical records, they'll have insurance records, which we'll 
sometimes talk about medical conditions. That's a problem. And finally, there's the problem of proprietary information. Uh, you know, if you're if you're raiding a Coca-Cola manufacturing plant in Atlanta, are, will the government end up with the formula to Coke? And wouldn't that upset Coke? Uh, so pleased. <laughs> Pepsi would be pleased as well. And in Northern Ohio, Royal Cup Crown Cola might be as well. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so those are kind of the four categories of information that are of concern. As I say, the way to deal with the privilege issue is it is, it is perhaps likely that the plant will not have much. Uh, small companies with one manufacturing plant, the corporate offices are there. Yeah, that is that's much more likely for the plant to have privileged, you know, attorney-client privileged communications. For example, uh, if if your Ford or General Motors will one of your plants have privileged documents, perhaps less likely. Although if the plant's involved in civil enforcement litigation, there may be a there may be a litigation file present. Um, but those are those can be dealt with. That issue can be dealt with when your attorney the next day calls the U.S. Attorney's Office and says you have privileged documents, and don't, and I, and either we work out a way to resolve this, or I'm going to be in court this afternoon. And as I say, my experience is they'll work with you and they will isolate the documents. And if you do it quickly, you won't have to unring the bell because the only one that will see it at the government is going to be this panel of, of lawyers that are not involved in, in, in the prosecution. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's going to be dealt with the HIPAA documents. Once you tell them, they'll send them back to you. Um, the proprietary information, the trade secrets, Maybe not. You may have to go to court to get a, some kind of protective order. Okay. So you talked earlier about one of the keys here is advanced preparation. So even though the likelihood of a criminal investigation is low, the, the repercussions are are bad enough that you should you should have some plans in place. What uh, what type of plan? And, and and I know that in the civil context, we we often have uh, recommend that our clients have plans in place. What would a criminal uh, protocol look like? Uh, point one would be who's in charge. In my hypothetical, the night manager was the only guy present on the property uh, when the search party arrived. Um, and it's important for everybody at the plant to know who's in charge. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is a, you know, a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, first do is to obtain a copy of the warrant. They're required to give it to you, but they don't have to give you time to read it. Uh, and you can you can insist on, on 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 seeing it. You can ask them not to conduct the search until you've read it. They'll conduct the search anyway. They're not required by law to wait, but you can ask. You know, my rule is it never hurts to ask. Uh, you're entitled to see the identification of the people participating in the search on behalf of the government. They they that is what the law requires. They are required to establish their bona fides, not only that uh, they have a valid warrant, but also who they are. Uh, so you, 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 can, you can insist on seeing the identification of, of everybody present. These are asks that they might not cooperate with you, but if they don't, you're setting up issues for your lawyers to give your lawyers leverage down the road. 
Uh, everybody has a cell phone now that can take a photograph of um, of all of the search party. You ought to do that. Uh, you uh, you want to know who they are, and the last thing you want to know is what they were interested in. Uh, your lawyers will want to know. Well, I mean, if there's three production lines, one is a plating line, one of them is two, the others aren't, and they only went to the plating line. That tells your lawyer what they're interested in. Well, um, I hope that our, our listeners never have to experience this, but if they do, I think that you've given a lot of very helpful information, Terry. Um, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. I know we could go on and on about this, um, but uh, what you've given our listeners today is, I think, a real solid foundation of things to consider. Uh, that will wrap up our episode for today. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, you can find Terry's full contact information at thompsonhine.com for professionals. If you have an idea for a future episode topic that you'd like uh, Thompson Hine to consider, contact me, Joel Eagle, um, at joel.eagle at thompsonhine.com. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Law Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and align with our short and long-term strategic goals. And now I will leave you with our friendly legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thank you so much for listening today. Stay safe and be on the lookout for our next episode coming soon.